0: Welcome to Langstaff Online. My name is Michael De Silva and I am your host for Episode 9. With the current COVID-19 global pandemic, we wanted to be able to serve the Church with messages that would encourage, guide, and direct each of us in our faith. We plan to post more episodes over the coming days and weeks, so please check back often. In this episode, we are going to be listening to Pablo Segal a full-time Bible teacher from Chile on the subject of unity in the church. This message will bring into perspective one of Jesus' greatest teachings for all of his followers of all ages, especially our own. Welcome everyone to this podcast in which we'll be considering the subject of the unity of the Church. This subject remains as one of those topics that are not always easy to approach. Probably some believer is now thinking, oh, I'm glad that uh, this subject is being addressed because we have so many problems in our local church. Maybe another Christian is thinking this subject is useless. There are so many Church divisions And Christian groups around the world, there is no way we can have, at least in theory, current examples of unity of the Church. Both hypothetical initial reactions are understandable. It is true that many local churches are suffering because of internal conflicts. It is also true that because of so many Christian groups around the world, discouragement might fill the heart and mind of the believer. Nonetheless, the subject of the unity of the Church needs to be studied and heard, not because our problems, which many of them, in my opinion, are rooted in our spiritual immaturity, will be automatically solved. Rather, the unity of the Church is a topic that demands to be studied and heard because we are in urgent need of being reminded of the marvelous beauty and value of the Church and its profound spirituality. In this first podcast, we will focus on the most critical passage regarding the unity of the Church, the Lord's Prayer in John 17. We will learn that in this extraordinary extraordinary record of our Lord's Prayer, we find both the basis and model for the unity of the Church. In order to do that, we will analyze the biblical text, so we hope you have your Bible at hand. The part of the prayer in which we will center our attention is John 17, 20 to 23. The section under consideration corresponds to the Lord's fifth petition within the whole prayer. He first um, asked the Father to glorify Him so that the Son might glorify the Father, in verse 1. Second, He asked the Father to keep His disciples in His name so that they may be one, verse 11. Third, the Lord Jesus asked the Father to protect the disciples from the evil one, in verse 15. In fourth place, Jesus requested the Father to sanctify the Apostles in the truth, in verse 17. Now we enter to the fifth petition in our Lord's Prayer. I'm reading from the ESV in John seventeen twenty. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their world, uh, through their word, that they may all uh, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them. that uh, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. There are at least two remarkable features in this section. First, we observe a progression in the Lord's petition moving from the limited group of the Apostles to an, until now, unknown, more large-scale group. The phrase, but not concerning these, I'm asking only, and this is a rougher but more literal translation of the Greek text, introduces this new cluster of persons. The Lord identifies them as those who will believe in me through their word. The Greek text offers a more vivid description of this new group. Using a present active participle of the verb pisteo to believe, the group can be described as those who are believing or even the believers. It is clear that this group's action of believing is still historically set in the future, and that's why most of the translations render those who will believe. However. Um, the observation of this grammatical fact suggests suggests uh, something beautiful. That is, Jesus, and I'm quoting here someone, that Jesus is picturing to himself all believers. Speaking absolutely, he sees them in spirit, these believers of all times and places, and by his prayer, he unites them in one body and transports them, in some sense, to glory. End of the quote. We can say with confident joy that the Lord Jesus Christ, in the previous hours of his death, envisions us and that he prays for us. The second remarkable feature is the threefold explicit petition for unity. Verse 21, in order that all of them may be one. Verse 22, in order that they may be one. And finally, in verse 23, so that they might be perfected into one all these instances are introduced by the Greek preposition Hina for um, so that or that indicating purpose as we will see now the Lord uses this preposition throughout his prayer ten times in total with a special relevance in this last part of his prayer Let's turn now then to verse 21. The verse opens with the preposition Hina, which the Lord uses six times between verses 21 and 23. The preposition in this case indicates both the content and purpose of the petition. But what is the Lord asking? That those who will believe may be one. It is striking to think that the Lord is not first asking for the church's Uh, for the Church's success in, in its mission of evangelizing the world, but for unity. Although the mission is essential, meaning that his followers will testify about the Lord to the world, the mission's success depends on the believers' unity, as we will see in a moment. But what does the Lord have in mind when he prays about the unity of the believers? What does this unity look like? The answer to this question is just astounding. As you, Father, are in me and I in you. We must take into account all the force that the small conjunction kathos, which means as, or just as, transmits. A Greek grammarian scholar defines the function of the conjunction kathos as both... Comparative and causative, implying that heavenly unity is both the model and source of the unity of believers. Therefore, the unity Jesus has in mind, as another scholar affirms and, and quote, is unity of the most elevated o- elevated order. It partakes the nature of that of the Father and the Son. As the Father lives in the Son and the Son in the Father, so the Son lives in the believers, and by living in them, he unites them closely one with another. End of the quote Consequently, the unity of the, uh, the unity the Lord asks the Father for is not mere institutional unity but an organic organic spiritual unity, one that, as another scholar comments, it's rooted in the being of God." End of quote. This last thought is reinforced by the second usage of the preposition hina, so that, complementing the petition for unity at the beginning of verse 21. The Lord asks now that they also may be in us. We must pause here a little to pay attention to the Greek text, which is our authoritative text. Some translations following the Textus uh, textus Receptus read, read in this way, that they also may be one in us. However, the reading that they also may be in us has better support from better manuscripts. Reading with or without the adjective one seems relevant for the understanding of the verse and the Lord's petition. If the less probable uh, probable reading is correct, then the Lord is only repeating the request for unity which He made at the beginning of verse 21, and that He will expand in verses 22 and 23. However, if uh, if the reading we propose is correct uh, without the adjective 1, then the Lord's second petition is more profound in its content, actually basing it on the first petition. The New Testament scholar Philip Comfort insightfully comments on this phrase, and I quote, The oneness among the believers is to be as the co-inherent oneness of the Father and the Son. In other words, as the Father and Son's oneness is that of mutual indwelling, John 10.30, for instance, so the believers are to have oneness with another by virtue of the mutual indwelling between each believer and the triune God. the The unity of the church, of the believers, is an extraordinary spiritual reality. We have oneness in Christ. We are one, and we are in God. This unity transcends ethnicity, gender, culture, and even our particular understanding regarding specific biblical teachings. As the Church today, we may disagree in a variety of passages, but but that does not change a bit the reality of what we are, one and one in God. We have said earlier that many believers might feel pessimistic regarding the reality of the unity of the Church. The reason for this feeling is that we see many different expressions of Christianity that we judge as incorrect because they do not practice their Christianity as we do. We thus confuse oneness with uniformity. Regarding this, there are two crucial observations to make. First, the Church's unity, as we already said, is based on and imitates the relationship within the Trinity. In this relationship, the Father is, as one commentator says, and I quote, active in and through the Son, in a manner that the Lord can say, don't you believe that I am in the Father, And that the Father is in me, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. John 14.10 Furthermore, the relationship we see within the Trinity is one in which each of the divine persons is seeking the glory of the other. Therefore, the Trinitarian unity is a dynamic activity that finds a response that results in both testimony and glory for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Second, even though the Triune God is perfect in oneness, each of the persons of the Trinity are distinguishable from the other. All believers agree on this, otherwise we would be heretics. The Father is not the Son, nor is the Son the Father, nor is the Father the Spirit, nor is the Spirit the Father, and so on. Each divine person is distinct, is dis- uh, distinct, and yet there are three persons in one. Perfect unity of distinct persons, but not uniformity. Uniformity leaves out diversity, whereas oneness not only accepts diversity, but also needs it. We, as believers, should display this model, too. As members of Christ's body, we are called to love one another and to seek the good and honor of one another. We must also learn to see our distinctiveness, not as a failure or threat, but as a blessing that enhances us to promote and nourish the spiritual life of every member of the Church. We are all different, distinct, and yet we are one. This truth applies to the local church, in which we have different ages, gender, cultural backgrounds, and personalities. But it also applies to THE church, that is, every believer around the world and through history. This global concept is what the Lord has in mind here, not the local churches, which are, after all, only visible expressions of a spiritual reality. Our struggle is that sometimes we feel uncomfortable or threatened when we find Christians who belong to a different tradition than ours. Even worse, at times we may even despise other believers because they understand Scripture differently. In this regard, we must be clear that every person that confesses and believes that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, God manifested in flesh, that came to this world to give His life on the cross as an atonement sacrifice, and that by believing in Him will be saved, is a true Christian. A true Christian will also firmly believe that sin cannot be forgiven but through faith in Jesus, and that salvation is by grace and grace alone. A true believer also firmly believes in the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A true believer firmly believes that the Son is co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. Some other fundamental doctrines for a true believer are, for instance, the inspiration and authority of the Bible, the existence of hell, the second coming of the Lord, and the final judgment for those who reject the Lord and the Gospel. Apart from these fundamental doctrines, we may, and we actually do, disagree with other believers. For instance, how to dress to go to the local church. If we should or should not have musical instruments, what Bible translation we should use, and so forth. These and other differences do not change one bit what we are, one in God. We, therefore, must be more cautious and respectful when we refer to other believers in harmful or derogatory terms. We actually should have in mind the same words the Lord Jesus told his disciples when they found some other disciples who were not with them. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons. But we told him, to stop because he wasn't in our group. Don't stop him, Jesus said. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. Mark 9, 38 and 39. This reading is from the New Living Translation. Let's go back to our passage now. So far, we have only observed the first two parts of the Lord's Triple Petition in verse 21 in order that they may be one, in order that they may be in us. Now we'll see the third part of the petition, which depends on the first two, in order that the world may believe that you have sent me. The unity of the believers not only is an ontological truth, a spiritual reality, but it, it must also be a visible certainty. This visibility will have an impact on the world. They will believe that Jesus is the one sent by God the Father. This is not the first time in which which the Lord affirms that spiritual reality also has an observable side. A few chapters before, the Lord said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John 13, 35. Love is, of course, a fundamental component of unity. The church church has a relationship of love and peace with the God with whom she was formerly alienated. Not showing unity with love, peace, and a shared will as expression of that unity makes the gospel become a discredited message. One of the church fathers, Chrysostom, comments, but if they quarrel, that is, Christians, people will deny that they are the disciples of a God of peace and will not allow allow that I, that is Jesus, not being peaceable, have been sent from you, end of the quote. Disciples quarrels make their master and Lord a quarrelsome person. This idea at every level is an outrageous representation of who Jesus and the one who sent him actually are. As A.T. Robertson observes, and I quote, Beyond a doubt, strife wrangling, division are a stumbling block to the outside world. End of the quote. The question that arises then is logical. How unbelievers... Who, by nature, by nature, as Paul says in titus three three are hated by others and hating one another, will credit the gospel if those who become part of the body of Christ are still not exhibiting to each other the peace that the gospel promises, as Brother Bruce Milion comments or comments. The biggest barriers to effective evangelism according to the prayer of Jesus are not so much outdated methods or inadequate presentations of the gospel as realities like gossip, insensitivity, negative criticism, jealousy, backbiting and unforgiving spirit, a root of bitterness, failure to appreciate others, self-preoccupation, greed, selfishness, selfishness and every other form of lovelessness. These are the squalid enemies of effective evangelism with, uh, which rendered the gospel fruitless and sent countless thousands into eternity without a savior. End of the quote. Let's turn now to verse 22 in which we find the second time the Lord asked for unity, so that they may uh, so they may be one. <clears throat> this phrase. Let's turn now to verse twenty-two, in which we find the second time the Lord asked for unity. So they may be one. This phrase is the shortest of Jesus' three requests for unity of the believers. The first one, in verse 21, includes the Greek adjective all, whereas the third statement, in verse 23, adds the verb to be perfected or complete and a preposition, to or into. This second petition for unity, though the shortest, is preceded by an impressive declaration that Jesus has given the believers the glory that the Father gave him. Let's take a look to this statement. And I, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. The declaration is remarkable because it indicates that this glory is given in order to create and maintain the unity of the believers. The question that arises is, what does Jesus mean by glory? This expression is one of the key terms throughout the Gospel of John. The verb, to glorify, appears 23 times, whereas the noun glory is used 19 times within the book. Here, in chapter 17, the Lord uses the noun doxa, or glory, three times in verses 5, 22, and 24, whereas the verb, to glorify, doxatso, appears eight times, twice in verse 1, verse 4, twice in verse 5, verse 10, verse 22, and verse 24. In the Gospel of John, glory means that divine, exclusive, majestic splendor that belongs to the Son even before the creation of the world. John seventeen five says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The word glory also refers to Jesus' uh, display of power, honor, fame, and status through the miracles he performed. For instance, in John 2.11, after transforming the um, the water into wine, the evangelist writes, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. There are two more aspects in which glory is particularly noteworthy for the message of the Gospel of John. First, at the introduction of the whole book, we read that the eternal Logos, the Word, became flesh, and that, the, uh, uh, that He made His dwelling among us. We see the relevance of this act when the Apostle says, We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnated eternal Word dwells among the human creature. By that dwelling, He is making visible the glory of God. These words take us to the tabernacle imagery in Exodus 40, 34 and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, however, the incarnated Logos makes the glory of God not only visible but beneficially active. John the Apostle affirmed that that glory was like the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory corresponds to, the, what, to what Moses saw when he asked, asked God to see His glory in Exodus 34, 5 and 6. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Him and proclaimed His name, the Lord. Or maybe more accurately, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. The words or expression abounding in love and faithfulness are equivalent to what John says about the kind of glory they witnessed, full of, of grace and truth it is then a glory characterized by grace and truth therefore glory is also as brother Don carson says supremely his goodness the other aspect that makes glory so significant for the message of john is its surprising relationship with the suffering death and resurrection of our lord For instance, in John 7, 39, we read, By by this He meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Perhaps this is the most striking expression of glory in the Gospel of John. In the Greco-Roman world, crucifixion was the most humiliating way of dying. To associate thus cross with glory seems unimaginable. But in John, the cross-death resurrection event is the ultimate expression of God's glory. It is the most explicit declaration of who and how God is. Returning Therefore, to our passage in John 17:22, we <clears throat> might now better understand what Jesus is requesting when he says, And I, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, so that they may be one, just as we are one. After briefly considering the word glory in the Gospel of John, we suggest... That the glory Jesus received from the Father and that he gave to the believers is tantamount to the goodness of God. This goodness was communicated to the believers by means of Jesus' glorification, that is, his death, resurrection, ascension. What an astonishing thought! The unity of the believers is extraordinarily glorious because it is wonderfully rooted and connected to the very glory of God we finally arrive at verse 23. In this verse, we will find the third occasion Jesus asked the Father that the believers may be one. Like the previous two statements, this one has a general purpose, but also adding new and remarkable content. Actually, we can understand this verse as standing in opposition to verse 22. A phrase standing in opposition means that verse 23 is expanding and explaining the information of the preceding verse. In verse 22, we learned that Jesus had given the believers the glory his Father gave him, in order that the believers may be one, just as the Father and the Son are one. Now, in verse 23, the Lord expands and explains what this means when he says, I in them and you in me. After these words, the Lord once again asks for unity, but adds new information regarding it. So they may be perfected into one, or so they may be brought to completion, so as to form one. The verbal construction is remarkable. By adding this particular verbal conjugation of teleio, to complete or to perfect, perfect, um, the phrase indicates that the unity will be a permanent state. This condition did not exist before, but the sun has accomplished it and its results will be permanent. Furthermore, the idea that unity was the intended goal purpose is reinforced by the usage of the preposition ace, which means into, plus the adjective one. The purpose was, from the very beginning, that this group of people, sinners, selfish and proud, would be perfected into one, to create an entity that is indivisibly united in virtue of God's display of His wondrous glory. I in them, and you in me, so that they may be perfectly one. Again, The picture is extraordinary. The unity of those who belong to Christ is not hypothetical. It is a reality that was materialized because of the Lord's death and resurrection, who now dwells in us while he dwells in the Father. We must now finish our podcast, but not without observing that in the last part of verse 23, we find perhaps one of the most touching words of the whole New Testament. In verse 21 we noticed that one of the purposes for the believers' unity is that the world would believe that the Father sent Jesus. Now in verse 23 we find a similar thought, although with some nuances. First, Jesus changes the verb to believe to the verb to know. This change may not imply a significant difference in meaning between the ideas of verses 21 and 23. It is also possible that the usage of the verb ginosko, to know, in verse 23 is a way to explain the verb pisteo, to believe, of verse 21. What is relevant nonetheless is that the Lord affirms that through the unity of believers, the world would know or recognize God's love for both the Son and the Church. The significance is that in John 1.10, whereby the Logos is introduced, the narrator informs that the Logos was in the world, and the world became to existence through him, but the world did not recognize him. The verb to recognize is the same the Lord uses here, "ginosko." The verb, excuse me, the created world did not recognize His Creator, but through the united people of God, the world will realize His love. This truth is just astounding. Jesus affirms so that the world may acknowledge that you have loved me and that you have loved them just as you have loved me. Just as you have loved me. God loves the church with the same quality and scope of love with which he loves the Son. The words of Professor Donald Carson are pertinent to finish this first podcast. And I quote, the thought is, brave, is breathtakingly extravagant. The unity of the disciples as it approaches the perfection that is its goal serves not only to convince many in the world that Christ is indeed the supreme locus of divine revelation as Christians claim, that you send me, but that Christians themselves have been caught up into the love of the Father for the Son secure and content and fulfilled because loved by the Almighty Himself. With the very same love He reserves for His Son. It is hard to imagine a more compelling evangelistic appeal. End of the quote. May the Lord help us to appreciate what the unity of church is. May the Lord help us to stop being judges of other believers and to start to be what we are, brothers and sisters in Christ.